Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 89. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing, Fooleman? Good. I mean, I do feel a little bit like the universe is out to get us. That's what I think. I think that it conspires to make us look silly. It undercuts our statements, feelings, and opinions. It treats us very badly. And so when we say things are going pretty well for the Leafs, when we have nice numbers and evidence to back it up, suddenly for a week, the Leafs lose a bunch of times or look kind of sloppy in the course of winning a game against the New Jersey Devils. Yeah. So it hasn't gone quite as well as I would have hoped since we did that podcast. There have actually been four games since then. And we got slammed by the Florida Panthers. We had a fun but slightly sloppy blowout of the New Jersey Devils, 7-4. We lost a tight one in the shootout to Calgary. And then, I don't know even really what that was last night to the Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, well, it wasn't pretty, I'll say that much. Um, (laughs) The thing is, we don't need help looking silly, right? Hockey makes us look silly often enough. And the the universe kind of compounding that is really just adding insult to, well, insult, I suppose. So there's no injury here. (laughs) Um, But we don't appreciate it very much. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, been very unfortunate. I think we'll have to get into the Chicago loss from all angles. I saw about half of it. I was out with some friends. We were initially watching the game. After certain events transpired in the game, there was a movement in the gathering towards perhaps doing something else. I have to tell you, I didn't fight that hard. Um, So I didn't see the last half of last night's game. Y'all can tell me if something really significant happened after they were already getting destroyed. Did it? Not really. I mean, okay. depends on what your definition of significant is. Um, I think we should we should, I guess, take a bit of a look at the at the whole week, right? Because yeah. you know we're heading into our, our bye week now. Um, no Leafs for like seven eight days. Uh, what a wonderful note to go out out on. <laughs> real <laughs> real point of pride for the boys there. Yeah, getting and you know Chicago's not even good anymore, man. They they can still score, and uh, wow, did they? But they really should not be that impressive. No, not at they all. Aren't. But going back to Florida, I mean, the Florida game is quite reminiscent of the Chicago game, right? In that the Leafs found themselves almost immediately down fairly big, Mm -hmm. right? And it was a combination of them not playing well, like the skaters not playing well to start, and then whatever the opposite of being bailed out is by Freddie Anderson. Like, you know... (laughs) Instead of Anderson, you know, is often the goaltenders are often, you know, the guys frantically trying to, you know, take a bucket and plug and get all the water that's getting into the ship, you know, toss it out. In this mm-hmm. case, Anderson was putting more water in it. Yeah, he, like he he's like, okay, I got a fire hose, guys. Don't worry. And we're like, wait, what? And then the boat sinks. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, and that was unfortunate against Florida because we kind of needed that four point swing and we did not get it. Right. I don't think I said this on the podcast, which I'm thankful about, but. When the Leafs were in the midst of their, like, hot streak, I was essentially mm-hmm. thinking, like, okay, I think we have a, just a very, very good chance of a playoff spot because we're, we're playing well. We look legitimately fine. Florida looks like a good but not outstanding team. I'd say we're probably slightly better than them on the whole, especially when we look at the, the Keefe era specifically. Mm-hmm. So I, our chances are quite good. 
But since then, you know, we've gone on a slide and Florida's gone on a bit of a run. And that was essentially the path that led it back to being a bit more of a toss up. Now, I still think our playoff odds are, are good and we're not going to focus too heavily on those specifically today. Mm-hmm. But the result is, yeah, though that game against Florida ended up being and, and not ended up, but has become fairly significant um, in that, you know, it's, it, as you said, it's a four point swing. So that's it, it's not pleasant to lose those games, and it's not pleasant to get kind of your ass beat in those games, if we're being completely honest. Yeah, that game was over quite quickly, and, you know, that's embarrassing. And the Leafs, uh, it's not all the way to even, well, they made it competitive. They did not make it competitive. They put goals in, and we know that they can do that. Uh, the goal scoring has mostly sustained itself, even through some of the iffier times. But they dug themselves such a hole that they were never going to be able to get out of it. Like, you know, eight goals is friggin' silly. Right. And, the, you know, the Leafs have been really putting up skyscraper goals against numbers for a while now. Uh, in the macro sense, probably for like three or four years. But <laughs> it does feel like lately it's getting really out of control. And we have the somewhat unpleasant task of kind of autopsying these losses and trying to say what exactly caused the death and it's always a combination right yes it's never a reflection when you get eight goals against you that you were playing great defense and it's never really a great sign for the goaltending you were getting either you know it takes a a village to be this bad to use one of Cash's old quotes yeah absolutely and in both the well let's talk about the Florida and Chicago games specifically because I think they're you know they're they're birds of the same feather Mm-hmm. Um, in both cases, if you look at the top line numbers, the Leafs dominated at five on five, and, and I, I actually used the term "dominated" there, where you know the Leafs had sixty four percent Corsi against Florida. They had like a sixty uh, something percent expected goals against Chicago, pr- pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true if you score against Justin. actually against Chicago, it wasn't quite as dominant. We we lost the Corsi battle, um, and actually the expected goals battle. So. That, that's actually uh, quite a bit different, at least at 5-on-5. Five five. Um, but they're, they're both games where the Leafs lost control early, right? Where they fell behind multiple goals within the first five minutes, 2 nothing within the first five minutes against Florida, and I think 3 nothing within the first 10 minutes against Chicago. And mm-hmm. essentially, that alone... At that point, it, it, you're you're running a very very low probability of it being a, co- a competitive hockey game again, right? And we have score adjustments, right? And and they're useful for this reason, but score adjustments don't fully account for the fact that you you basically lost the game in those ten minutes. Yes, and I've thought about this a lot when we were on the fun end of such a game uh, against Detroit, which for a while was really. Juicing the XG stats under Sheldon Keefe because it was so lopsided and we crushed the team absolutely. But I noticed that the Red Wings, who were having goalie troubles that night themselves and are very bad, the air went out of the balloon on them and they stopped trying at all. With the result that despite being down five or six goals, the Leafs actually still clobbered them in the third period in all of these metrics that we like to talk about. Because Detroit and I feel comfortable saying this, did not want to play anymore. Now, the Leafs did not seem to quite go that desperately air out of the balloon in the games that I saw. You know, they kept pressing to some extent. 
But I do think the, you know, maybe score effects don't cover the whole impact that it has of playing in a game where both sides are pretty confident who's going to win. Yeah. And the thing is, it's become, I think, commonplace to place the blame on Anderson for these two games and in general for his play over the past few months, really, ever since November. Um, well, let's set aside the play over the last few months. We'll talk about that shortly. But looking at these two games, you know, that that's that's culpable. That, that's kind of reasonable in, in a way. Um, Anderson certainly did not play very well. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of goals in both games where you're like, you know, you kind of have to have that slash should have that if you're an average goalie. We remark on this a lot, but sometimes you just need to make a save. Good goalies make tough saves. Anderson mm-hmm. has been a good goalie over the course of his career, over the course of his Leafs career especially. We expect him to make good saves, and we kind of... We need him to make good saves. That's all, all teams rely on their goalies to make good saves, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's reasonable to blame Anderson to some extent for that. The thing is, it's also fair to say, especially in the early going in those games, the Leafs didn't play well. The Leafs were sloppy. The Leafs did allow odd man rushes. They did have defensive breakdowns that made, you know, that made going down so early so quickly a real possibility. Now, in mm. most situations, kind of the path that the Leafs took that game does not result in them being down 2 nothing in 5 minutes or down 3 nothing in 10 minutes, right? Yeah, it's a compounding thing. You're putting yourself in a position where this is a possibility, and then the possibility is realized because your goalie bobbles a couple. And then, there you go. And then the game is gone, Yeah. right? So there's, there's kind of multiple ways to look at it because... Many teams have stretches like that. If you watch a Tampa game, and I'm sure, you know, I've seen Alan complain about this on Twitter, Tampa will go through 10-minute stretches where just, they just look like they don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and in some some taste, sometimes that burns them, and sometimes they get through those 10-minute stretches without a problem, and then they, they win the rest of the game. And then that 10-minute stretch is just a footnote in the larger story of the game. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, you know, the Leafs were punished for their in different stretches, it, it, it plays an outsized role in our mind. Nonetheless, they did have those in different stretches, and that is not a good thing. It's, it's very clearly not a good thing. But all teams have them. So it's a question of how much do you blame the skaters for that versus how much of it is goaltending. And, and the answer is obviously it, it's a both. As you said, it takes a village to, to lose 8-4. It takes a village to lose mm-hmm. 6-2. Um, but it, it's not... It's... It, we certainly can't just lay the blame at the feet of Anderson and be like, well, we would have won if we had an average goalie. It's possibly true, right? But mm-hmm. it overlooks the fact that the Leafs were putting themselves on a path where it was possible for that to happen. And it, and it did happen, right? Even if it was relatively unlikely, that's still something that can be addressed. Um, Blake Murphy, who's a basketball writer for The Athletic, has kind of this nice way of phrasing this where in basketball one of the common things to say is make or miss league which is essentially the same thing as what happens in hockey it's saying at the end of the day you can talk about all the strategy and all the minutiae and all the tactics of basketball but a lot of it comes down to who hits threes who hits free throws Mm -hmm. who you know who's just shooting better right but that doesn't mean you kind of ignore everything else and whenever you lose you say make or miss league you know whatever we can't deal with that um if anything, it puts more emphasis on controlling what you can control and trying to minimize the role of variance and give yourself as much margin of error as possible. Now, the Leafs were undoubtedly, quote-unquote, unlucky in that Anderson has had stinkers in both Florida and Chicago. 
but you know they also have to give themselves a bit more margin for error where possible or, or we should at least evaluate them in the context of you know were, were they giving themselves as much margin for error as possible how was their play independent of that and i think it's hard to say that there weren't some problems besides anderson as well he's not he's perhaps the largest reason for this slide but he's not the sole reason so that was like a bit of a long monologue but i guess what are your thoughts on that kind of idea no, I think that's true, and I think that it's probably worth remembering that at this point, the Leafs are playing an extremely arguable quantity of genuine top four defensemen. Like, they're down Morgan Riley and Jake Muzzin right now. Those are big losses, even if you think Riley was scuffling this year, which to some extent we all do. Uh, you know, it makes a team that is not especially great defensively to begin with worse. And, you know... Uh, I don't think that it's totally unforeseeable if you step back a bit that the Leafs would get worse defensively. And it coinciding with Freddie having a dip in play is already a bit of a recipe for disaster. Um, again, the Leafs' defensive play is a bit of a work in progress, notwithstanding there have been some surprisingly encouraging signs from Austin Matthews. I think work in progress is a little bit kind, frankly. A work in progress suggests <laughs> progress. Yeah, okay. It's a construction site that's been abandoned with the building halfway up and then holes through the windows and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I do think of, uh, this is going to be one of the nerdiest references on probably like the Nerdiest Leafs podcast, but there's uh, a quote in Machiavelli where one of the things that he says in The Prince is, luck can ruin you always, no matter what you do about it after a certain point, you know, Fortuna, he says. And I think about that a lot with Issues like this, where it's there is a certain level of goaltending, of not getting the bounces, of what have you, that even if you play pretty well, you will get kind of beat. And I thought that in a couple of contexts this week, um, the game against Calgary, the Leafs played, I thought, pretty well. Mm -hmm. They were, in my opinion, the better team. They ran into Dave Riddich, who played one of the best goaltending games I've seen this year from a Leaf opponent. Uh, and there was very little we could do about it. We lost 2-1 in a shootout, despite playing pretty well, after Riddich made a bunch of 10-bell saves. In his next game, Riddich started against Ottawa and got scored on three times in seven shots. It's sometimes you just have to sort of say shit happens, and to some extent, it's like, if you replay that game against Florida over in the same circumstances, do they lose 8-4 that frequently? I doubt it. But it is a sort of a thing where it's like we put ourselves in a situation where this could really blow up on us and then it did so i don't think it's as bad as it feels after games like the florida game the chicago game but it's bad enough to be a problem and yet my analysis of issues with goaltending as far as freddie goes is kind of simple either freddie anderson figures it out or we're dead that's it I don't think that there's anyone on a white horse coming in. I don't think that, you know, you pay the farm for another guy to hopefully come in and be your starter at this late stage. I don't think Michael Hutchinson can do it. So I'm almost kind of fatalistic about it. I think Freddie's been a good goalie. I think he will be again. If he's not, we're done. And there's very little we can do to stop it, so. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think I think that's that's basically accurate, right? Like, what what else... How are things going to change, really? We're not... Mm -hmm. 
we're not going to we don't have the cap room or the assets to acquire someone who is realistically going to challenge Anderson, right? That's just that's just not happening. We acquire someone that's going to be a backup. They're going to be playing, even if we, even if they play really well, maybe they take one or two of Freddie's extra starts. They're going to be playing maybe ten games the rest of the year at most, at absolute most. Yeah, unless you say Freddie is done, he's cooked. We can tell. We're getting someone to come in and be the total new starter for the last third of the season. A couple of teams have done that before. Uh, the St. Louis Blues did it with Ryan Miller, and it did not end especially well for them. I don't think that's going to happen. So, I don't really know that I have a ton to recommend. Uh, we're we're going to end up talking about the Georgiev thing a little later. But I don't think that there's really much alternative except for the Leafs to kind of control what they can control in terms of the defense. And then Freddie Anderson has to do his best to kind of right the ship. I know people are now starting to say, and they say this anytime I go start slumping, it's like the book is kind of out on him. Because Dave Riddich said the pre-scout on Anderson was shoot five hole. I don't know. I think Freddie Anderson has established over quite an extensive period that he can be a good starting goalie in this league. We need him to get back there. So... We'll see. The reason I'm always skeptical of, of those things, and I've also seen on like you know Sportsnet and TSN broadcasts, so like you know, 20 goals have gone in on Freddie Anderson five hole this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, Anderson isn't some new hot shot rookie. He's been in the league a while. He's been on the most popular team in the league for some time. Well, it took them three years to be like, oh fuck, this guy can't say five hole. Like, what does that say about the quality of scouting in the NHL then? Yeah, I mean, if that's his kryptonite, then someone really should have gone for it sooner. Yeah, it's like it's like in the NBA, they have like detailed pre-scouts. They're like, oh, you got to force this guy to the right. You should trap him on side pick and rolls, uh, force him to the baseline. He can't use his left hand, but he when he gets into the lane, he you know he can only pass him with what he can only pass in one direction because of his handedness or stuff like that. It's all super mm-hmm. detailed. And it's like, oh yeah, aim for one of the five spots that's typically open. <laughs> Shoot where he's not. Have you tried that? That might work. Right? So, like, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical of whether yeah. shoot five hole is a repeatable thing. Yeah, and the other thing is that the context of that is post the Calgary game, where there was one goal against in 65 minutes of regular play, and it was a high tip in the slot. So, I don't think that that's any really thing really about five hole. The other thing and is then, they, they never mention what proportion of shots are aimed at the five hole. They say, you know, he's led in 22 goals, whatever, five hole. What if that's 85% of his shots? Obviously, 85 is a ridiculous number. But what if that's like a huge portion of the shots he faces are trying to go five hole? And he saves most yeah, of them. Yeah, that's the other thing. Right? Like it's, and maybe, you know, maybe the book is out on him, so to speak. And he's adapted and he's become quite good at stealing the five hole. It's just everyone's still shooting for it. But yeah, I was just going to say in the Calgary game, it was one shootout goal. And, you know, I don't think Freddie Anderson has actually ever been all that great in shootouts. That's kind of an recurring thing. But, yeah... So I almost feel like I, I maybe I'm just trying to stake up my customary middle ground on this sort of thing. I think you have to acknowledge that Freddie has not been great lately. Yes, he absolutely has and, not been great. Yeah, I, I mean, in the simplest sense, he has 12 more goals against than expected since uh, Sheldon Keefe came in on November 21st. That's not great for a starting goalie. And I think that even accounting for the fact that the Leafs give up Chances that are probably more dangerous than expected goals accounts for, that's a big difference. That's a lot, and it's worse than he usually is, and it's enough to really hurt us. If he does that going forward, again, I think we're screwed. But 
I think at the same time, the Leafs have to come at it almost from an attitude of, okay, Freddie and maybe the goalie coach and maybe a couple of rounds of relaxing shooting golf at Augusta are going to have to sort that end of it out. We know that the defense has also not been adequate. Some of that's personnel-based. Some of that is just failure of the personnel we do have. We're going to get Jake Muzzin back, hopefully, pretty soon. And... Beyond that, if we can upgrade a defense, great, but I don't think Kyle Dubas is in the rental market because he's not keen on that, and if so, I support him. By and large, they've got to kind of prioritize skater solutions just because, again, I think that that's the thing that you can really control. There are a very short list of people who can really help Freddie Anderson fix what's going wrong with him, and again, it's him and his goalie coach probably, so... I guess that's kind of a resigned way of looking at what seems to be our current bleeding problem. Yeah. But I don't see that much else is reasonable because, again, I don't think it's likely to be fixed. Right. I mean, it doesn't come from inside. Yeah, to my earlier point, this is the hockey version of make or miss league. If your goalie, Mm -hmm. you know, throws up a stinker, you're not going to win. And you're going to look bad losing. And the Leafs spent a lot Mm -hmm. of time doing that in 2008 and 2009. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, and, and people have said, okay, well, it's on Dubas to find a solution to this. I mean, I think that's easy to say, and then that falls under, that like starts looking a lot stupider when you put it under some scrutiny. Because what are the solutions to this? Like, as we said, are you going to acquire a starter? No, obviously not. Right? You can tr- try and acquire, like, a competent backup and maybe try and ride the hot hand. The realistic scenario there is and the problem with acquiring goalies in general is that they're really high variance they're really high volatility it's hard to Mm -hmm. acquire a goalie and have them you know be good right or know that they're going to be good you're kind of rolling dice um and that's typically why prices for non-established goalies are so low typically yes and it's actually worth a little look at the goalie market in the context of Alexander Georgiev. And so maybe I'll depart on that just because it's been such a topic of conversation in Leafland lately that it's worth discussing. So Alexander Georgiev is a up-and-coming goalie. He's 23 for the New York Rangers. You probably remember him especially vividly if you are a Leafs fan because he's played a couple of really terrific games against us. And we, we were saying, you know, who the hell is this kid? What's he doing to us? Um, he's a good goalie, by all means, on the way up, I think it's fair to say. He's had pretty decent numbers this year. He's doing better than average in a sort of well-used backup role. But the Rangers have a bit of a decision to make. They have the legendary Henrik Lundqvist, who is still on their team. He's still got a big salary next year for $8.5 million in a cap hit. He's still got a new move clause that as yet, he's apparently not super inclined to wave. And so he's a little bit baked in. And then they have Igor Shesterkin, who is an extremely well-thought-of young Russian goaltender uh, who's come over, and now the Rangers are carrying three goalies. And so the question is, do they sustainably wish to carry three goalies going forward? Probably not. Teams don't really do that. It's awkward in a lot of respects. You're probably not playing one of the guys. Um, so he's not getting adequate time in games, first of all. It's awkward in practices because you have one goalie in each net, and then where does the third guy go? you kind of got to address your whole drilling operation. 
So a lot of people think that sooner rather than later, they're probably going to trade someone. And from what we've heard, it's not going to be Lundqvist. It sounds like it's going to be Georgiev. However, the rumored prices on Georgiev are kind of bananas. There have been a lot of leaks. And then there was a quote from Darren Dreger on Twitter where he said, I'm not even sure Kasperi Kapanen gets it done. In other words, that if the Leafs offered Kasperi Kapanen for Alexander Georgiev, the Rangers would probably say no at present. To be clear, this is sort of my segue into my bad take of the week, sort of. A lot of people don't like Darren Dreger for a lot of reasons. He's certainly very careful in terms of saying things that Actually, when you read them word for word, shy away from having a real conclusion. He's very cautious, but he's a real reporter. I don't think that he makes things up, and I think that people are maybe a little casual and assuming serious violations of journalistic ethics on his part. He's a real reporter. Yeah. If he says, I'm not sure Kapanen would be enough, he is reporting, I think, a stance that the Rangers are actually taking. Now, maybe he doesn't believe it. I don't really believe that that's realistic. But probably someone actually does feel that way on their end. Yeah, and it, it, it might not even be a stance that the Rangers are privately taking, as you said, but it, it I believe he has been told this, right? Exactly. That, that's, the thing, so, uh, that's the thing yeah. with all these hockey insiders, for the most part, is I believe they are basically relaying what they have been told. And then you have to think about who told them and who does it benefit for this to come out, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're the New York Rangers, quite logically, wouldn't you like a Toronto reporter to raise expectations as to what the price is? And wouldn't you, as a bargaining position, even if you don't care that much about, you know, the public thing, uh, you want to set a high price at this stage in negotiations. Why wouldn't you make them come up to you? Um, so I think that that's all reasonable, even if they do eventually want to trade Alexander Georgiev, which I think they probably do. Now, if they decide, no, you know what, we're going to sit tight for a bit, uh, Igor Shesterkin can go down to the AHL for now, but they probably do want to make a decision sooner rather than later on this sort of thing, I would guess. Kasperi Kapanen is simply more than teams get for these guys. The trick with evaluating guys like Georgiev is because you're not just acquiring a backup who would be on a rental or some sort of insurance on a playoff run. With remarkable consistency, rental backups who aren't expected to be much more than insurance get a third round pick. That's been going on for a while now, and I'm not saying it's always true, but it's pretty reliable. You aren't really getting Georgiev to be a starter, though, because he hasn't done that in the NHL yet. He's only he's played a- 65 games in his NHL career, something like that. Like He's played less than one Freddie Anderson season. Yeah, and so not only is that not a lot, that's less than a lot of goalies who have kind of been in this position before. And I have to say, I find it weird there's a bit of collective amnesia that there are guys who come up who people think, oh, maybe he's a 1B with potential to be a 1A. Now, Georgiev is young, so there's that going for him. You can certainly talk yourself into even further improvement from what he already is, which is quite a good backup. But he also has a lot less of an NHL track record, as we said. There have been guys in these situations before, and they don't 
pull players of the caliber of Kasperi Kapanen, who is a high-end third-line to middle-second-line forward, I would say. To take an example, uh, Philipp Grubauer was kind of blocked behind Braden Holtby in Washington, and so Washington, in June 2018, traded him to the Colorado Avalanche for a second-round pick, and then they also disposed of Brooks Orpik's contract because it was a lot for Washington. Washington sent it to Colorado. Colorado bought it out. And so Grubauer signed immediately. Was it just a second-round pick that went back? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Oh, wow. That is a lot cheaper than I thought it was. Jeez. That may be a recurring theme. And so, yeah, they then signed Grubauer to a three-year, $10 million contract extension. And that's interesting because that's more than a backup makes. Uh, but it's less than a starter, and they were indeed kind of bringing him on as a 1B to Semyon Varlamov, who has now left them, and now Grubauer is their guy. That's kind of a high-end example, because Grubauer had been quite good in a backup role with Washington for several years. Now, he was older than Georgiev, but he was also very effective. And so, he seems to me like kind of the high-end. If you want to look at a couple of other examples, Frederick Anderson pulled a very late first, and then a mid-second, to come to Toronto. And the Leafs extended him immediately as their starter, on what has turned out to be a good contract. Uh, Cam Talbot, when he went to Edmonton, may be especially interesting, even though it's a few years old, because he was actually blocked in New York by Hedrick Lundqvist. So they've sort of gone to that situation again. Uh, the Oilers paid a second, third, and seventh to the Rangers for Talbot and a seventh. And Talbot had a year left. Now... All of this kind of adds up to me to make me think, okay, no one is really giving up a high caliber forward in these kind of transactions for a goalie, or even really a mid one. I mean, looking at uh, Jonathan Bernier, for example, who, again, that was a trade a while back, the best forward to move in any of these transactions was Matt Fratton, who turned out to be a, a quadruple A player who went on a hot streak. None of this adds up to me to there's going to be someone who's going to give up Kasperi Kapanen. Now, maybe the San Jose Sharks or the New Jersey Devils are so convinced that this guy is going to be their starter going forward that they will pay starter prices. They will pay more. Even then, those are probably less than some people think just because there's so much random variation in goalies that teams pay less for them by default. But I really don't think that if he's acquired as a 1B... He's going to pull, uh, Georgiev is going to pull a player of Kapanen's caliber. I just do not think that that's going to happen. If they get it out of another team, good for them. I doubt they get it out of us. I think New York will have to come to the table a little bit. And I know that people find it very annoying when Leaf fans say these sort of things. But they're asking the moon and the stars, and I don't think we're quite that stupid. Yeah, I mean, I find it hard to disagree with, with, with any of that. I mean... What's worth mentioning is that Georgiev is not some unique unicorn quantity as like the only 1B that exists or the only possible, you know, goalie trade target, right? There are mm -hmm. lots of guys like this. It, you look at 
I mean, a lot, a lot. There's a lot of goalies who have, as you said, kind of similar-ish track record. You don't want to get one-itis when it comes to this sort of thing, where it's like, oh, it has to be, has to be that guy in particular, right? The mm-hmm. reality is, we still don't have a ton of data on him, and that's why I'm okay with acquiring him at a backup price, right? As soon as you start paying well over what the historical comparables have been for backup slash one B players. You've mm-hmm. run a decent chance of, of losing um, of losing that deal. And I think people are a bit lower on Kapanen right now than they should be um, for a couple reasons. The first is that he's not William Nienander or Mitch Marner, right? He, he's always mm-hmm. compared to those guys, just implicitly, because they're the two right-wingers on this team. So, And you can say that, you know what, he'd be more valuable on another team than he would be on us because he'd be higher up in the lineup on most other teams. Yeah, which is probably true. Yes, which is probably true. Which which makes it you know somewhat reasonable to to maybe shop him for a defense upgrade if you if you want to allocate you know more of your resources towards that. That's a separate conversation. But mm-hmm. that doesn't make him you know just a not a, a not valuable player because he is. Um, we talked about him a bit last week, right? The thing is, Kapanen, his skill set is such that he maybe doesn't have the most versatile usage in the world, at least when it comes to being used higher up in the lineup, right? He he's, doesn't have good vision. He's not a good passer. His ability mm-hmm. to use his line mates as a result is limited, certainly compared to elite creative players like Marner and Nylander. Mm-hmm. But Kapanen and Kerfoot together have formed the spine of what I think is an excellent, excellent third line. And, you know, I talked last year about when the Leafs were at their best, what made them dangerous is that they had three center right wing combinations that were going to most likely beat their competition. Mm-hmm. And they could fit whatever left wing you want around them, decent complementary players. And I think, you know, we downgraded in trading Nazem Kadri. We all knew that. Um, but we still kind of have that to a degree. That's why I think Kerfoot's been successful. He, he's been good enough at that where we haven't lost a huge amount of what Kadri provided, at least at, at five on five there. Mm hmm. So Kapanen is, is very much a part of that. He, he is a vi- he's an amazing third liner, and I think people forget what an actual second line right wing looks like because we're used to having two elite right wingers instead. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's worth keeping that in mind. Kapanen was, was really poor on his offside. That does not suit him or his skill set at all. He is not going to make his teammates and line mates better the way our other two star right wingers will. That doesn't mean he's not a valuable player. He's an interesting package because he has that speed. He has a good shot. And in his past, he, he's been a very good shot generator, right? Also with PK Utility and all that stuff. Uh, I wouldn't give that away for a backup or, or for someone who projects as a backup slash low-end starter with this many questions about him. If it was like, say, say you were trading for the Corey Schneider that got traded from Vancouver to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. then that's a more reasonable thing. And, and actually, it would be an underpay at that point. Yeah, it, it would be. And that's the thing that um, is a good example, actually, because Corey Schneider had been consistently one of the better goalies. Um, maybe, the, maybe the king of the 1B, so to speak. He was almost taking the job from Luongo, and he might have if it weren't for Luongo's contract. And he was good in New Jersey for a bit, and then he imploded. 
And now his contract is a bit of an albatross, or it would be if New Jersey weren't so awful anyway that they kind of don't care anymore. That's sort of the inherent volatility in the whole goalie market where it's like you just don't know that well. And I'm not saying that it goes all the way to give up. I've seen that, well, I shouldn't say I've seen it advocated. I've seen some people suggest that there's so little correlation between goalie performance and what they cost that it's almost worth staying out of the pool altogether. I wouldn't say that, but I would say I would be very hesitant to talk yourself into any goalie being the savior because even though he might be, lots of guys might be. There's a tier of, you know, 20 guys who are potentially the next big thing, and a couple of them will be. Maybe Georgiev is one. The early signs are good, but you can't pay for that recognizing the volatility in the position. You are not buying your next starter here unless you get lucky. So if you're buying a good backup to 1B thing, hopefully he delivers on that, but you shouldn't be paying starter prices. Yeah, and then I guess all of this goes to reinforce the idea that you had of, you know, no one's walking through that door that makes our goaltending situation that much better. We don't really have the assets to trade, nor does it necessarily make sense to do it for something that's inherently going to be a risk, because no matter who you get in goal, um, there's a decent chance they blow up on you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's, that's the tricky side of things. And while the Leafs' defensive side recently has probably been more related to goaltending than anything else um like i don't i don't think they're 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 playing much worse defensively than they usually do it's just even at their best they're not a tremendous defensive team Mm -hmm. right so that's that's just going to be that's just who we are yeah and you know we want to mitigate it to some extent i'm seeing signs of frustration from sheldon keefe for the first time And, you know, I can't blame him. This would frustrate me, too. But, you know, there are going to be ups and downs. And as much fun as it was in sort of the Pollyanna surge, and as much as I do think that that optimism is still sort of justified, like the team has been good more than it's been bad under him by a lot, in my opinion, warts and all. It's just now we're right in the thick of a playoff fight. We have to play well and we have to get good goaltending if we're going to beat Florida or one of the other wildcard teams. So, you know, I suppose that it's hard to get a feel for this outside of the context of sort of the ongoing anxiety of the season where it's like it seemed like it was almost done. And then we surged back and now we're in a real contest for that third seed. Like there's not a lot guaranteed to us. It's kind of uncomfortable and tense, and it's going to be tight down the stretch, and we might not make it, but, you know, I think that all that whiplash in terms of adjusting expectations up and down and up again and down again, it, it might be the kind of environment that if you're a GM, lends itself to making mistakes, to making overpays on a guy like Georgiev. I don't think, thankfully, that Kyle Dubas is going to do it. Um, I did hear from Friedman, I mean, everyone heard from Friedman, I should say, Apparently, there was no actual formal offer made by the Leafs on Georgiev. They just sort of shook the leaves and inquired as to what the price is. I'm pretty sure if the Rangers came back and said, oh, yeah, we want Kapanen in the second or something like that, the Leafs said, okay, goodbye. And that's probably where it is right now. If that's an actual, an accurate excuse me, reflection of what the Rangers think they're going to get for this, maybe they'll get it out of somebody, but it shouldn't be us. 
So, yeah. Um, one other thing I want to mention about Georgiev in particular, he has, as you as you mentioned, as you alluded to, he has an above average saves above expectation uh, pretty much his entire career. At five on five, it's not quite as good. I think it's he's slightly below average at five on mm-hmm. five. Now, PK save percentage is, is a thing. Um, if you've you know listened or read Katya's stuff at any point, you'll note that she's been kind of pointing out that Anderson, for a while now, has been a bad goalie on the penalty kill. When you look at you know PK save percentage and goals above saved above expected on on the PK. Um, as we've discussed before, expected goals on power plays are a little more dubious, I think, than expected goals at five on five because teams can be more intentional about pre-shot movement. They can be more intentional about um, setting up good shooters in their wheelhouses to make what are typically not great shots actually very, very good shots. Um, So I put a little less stock into those numbers. And again, as we've said, it's just, there's just not much of a track record. We're talking about 65 games over the course of three seasons. Mm Mm-hmm. Right for a young goalie, so he's changing over that time too. It, it's it's a lot. To, it, it's not a lot to hang your hat on. Uh, some of the goalie people I follow kind of see Georgiev as a fringe starter at his best. Mm-hmm. So, which is to be sure, like I don't. I think there's a very very good argument, an almost ironclad argument that Georgiev is better than Michael Hutchinson. Oh, he yeah. would make us better. It's just buy enough to make that sort of trade. I don't know, probably not. And even if he he is good, are you going to give him starts and take away starts from Anderson? Right, because that's kind of a big call to make. And so given that Anderson is kind of the horse that we're hitched to at this point, I don't think that there's really a fix for that, as I've been saying, other than Anderson getting back to normal. And I think that it's more likely he will than he won't. And I think that it's more likely the defense improves by adding Jake Muzzin and Morgan Riley, even if they do nothing else. But again, if it doesn't, I don't know that this team is super viable. It's going to be pretty tough sledding. Yeah, no no team is viable when their goalie is playing like ass, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then the question yeah. becomes, is this team a contender, right? That's what we thought they were to start the year. And you never feel like a contender when you're losing, even if you're losing in large part because your goaltender is playing like ass. Because... You know, there, there's a lot of the, the the kind of low XG chances that become goals are now subject to like scrutiny, right? Where you're like, you know, people p- tw- uh, pick them apart in in Twitter threads of like, oh, so and so could have done better here or whatever. Whereas if that's saved or if the player just misses the shot, it's not seen as a big deal. So there's always the that truth is kind that of- I think every hockey goal ever. You can point to someone should have done something better on the defensive side. Yes. And you can do so plausibly. Yes. To be clear, like, you know, there is always room for improvement, and that's kind of how it goes, unless it's an insane fluke goal. Or if it's like a point shot it, that goes in, right? It's like, okay, well, you know, what, what are you going to do? Just never give up a point shot ever again? Yeah. Uh, you know, there are certain things that are just beyond the capacity to adjust, but then you say, okay, the goalie's got to have that. Yeah. So it, know, the, I guess the, the quintessential example of not really a mistake is a shot that's going wide and hits a defender's skate or something. But yes. like, by and large, you can always point to something. Like, someone should have been 
covering that guy. That guy shouldn't have been allowed to get to the high danger areas. But we know, you know, teams get to the front of the net. If hockey is played perfectly, it would every game would be zero zero with zero shots. Yeah, every shot and, and, is know, a that's mistake. Kind of how it is, right? Um, now, yeah, yeah, and you know, it's not to say that the Leafs have been especially close to perfect defense at any point recently or prior to recently. But it is to say that I don't think you can like look at this and look at some of the goals that are going in and think this is on the defense for allowing this sort of thing to happen on an ongoing basis. You can say they should do better and they should. It's just, I really do think that you have to pin some of this just on inadequate goaltending. And I think that there's a reluctance to do that. One, because it sounds like it's letting the team off the hook and the team is frustrating you. And two, because I think if you grew up playing hockey or you've played beer league or anything, you still know that kind of dressing room code of you don't criticize the goalie. You just don't do it no matter how bad he's been. Um, At most you do it internally, but even then that's a, a reluctant thing to do. And so I do think that that almost carries over into the discourse because anytime you say the goaltending hasn't been that great, it's remarkable how much pushback you get. I've just found this repeatedly on Twitter and elsewhere. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You have to be realistic here. Yeah. So so to sum up, I guess, kind of our thoughts on the Leafs slide, it's like it's like a two things can be true situation, right? Like the Leafs yeah. are not good defensively. They haven't been good defensively forever. I'm not sure that they're especially worse now than they than they have been aside from the aside from the injuries. And Anderson mm-hmm. has been really poor, which is which has caused a lot of problems. Um and, you know, it's I guess it doesn't fundamentally alter how, how we view the team. If you view the team as good enough offensively to make up for their flaws that and that makes them a contender, that makes them a good team, or that makes them an okay team, I think that should still be your thought now, you know, if, if it was your thought a week ago or two weeks ago. I don't mm-hmm. think enough has really fundamentally changed about this team aside from the fact that, you know, the results have, have gotten a little worse in large part because of goaltending. The, the reality is the way this team plays opens themselves up it puts them on paths as we said you know kind of off the jump it puts them on paths where they can get just demolished early because if they are not playing well if they're not generating offense for a 10 minute stretch and everything goes against them they're screwed right and mm-hmm. you know and a lot of the times those those stretches will end up not hurting the team and they'll be fine in in the large scale of the game these this past week those stretches have been hurting the team mm-hmm. and and that's just who we are so yeah i guess not a lot has has changed on that front. Yeah, I, we just kind of got to hope for the best. And, you know, it's in some ways a good time for a bye week. Get everyone rested and maybe come back, hopefully ready to play. I mean, depending on how you want to look at it. I know some people get in a punitive frame of mind and think they should be spending this week on the rink and practicing or something. I don't know. Yeah, so, it's it's as you said you're always at the mercy of of the the percentage and goalie gods so we need to fix what we can we need to get better defensively or not we need to Mm -hmm. but it would help us it would give us more margin for error if we got better defensively i'm not holding out hope for that i think our system is it is what it is it's leaning into what we are um yeah and i think i I think jake muzzin will help oh absolutely and that's about all we have and and morgan Riley will help too like as much as he is struggled at times this year yeah he's morgan rye on his worst day is still probably more useful player than martin marinson yeah and the only thing is is that by the time morgan riley is back our fate may be decided yes 
but uh, yeah, you know, so I it's not like there's nothing to hope for there, but you know, by and large, I I almost feel like to some extent you're accepting this as part of the value proposition of the Leafs. Yeah, like a tiger's not changing you know, his stripes. They were always going to be a team that could get destroyed, and they still are. And so that's kind of the trade-off that you're accepting. Yeah. Um, so it, I'm not saying that it's fun, and you know, but that's how it is. Yeah. So if <laughs> if you like like the activated D and whatnot, well, I mean, this is this is the flip side of that. Sometimes we look stupid, right? Sometimes our our plan of being very kind of reliant on our ability to pass the puck within our own zone and get it up with speed. If that's not working, we can look really bad, and that's what's happened for stretches, and we've been punished for those stretches. Um, there's this one yeah. sequence I want. I actually kind of laughed. At. I brought it up in our in our PPP Slack, um, where I think this was when we were down three nothing, and Keith put out a power line of Matthews, Nylander, Marner. Right. So it's like okay, yeah. I mean, there's three of our four best forwards. Um, so they go and they enter the zone, um, and then there's like a, a short cycle going on, and a point shot happens from the lefty. I guess it must have been Sandine. And then I, I see this big number, this big player at the front of the net. I'm like, wait, that doesn't look like any of the forwards. And the play develops, and I see it's Cody Cece playing net front. <laughs> and I just started laughing. It's like, we have Matthews, Nylander, and Marner on the ice, and one of them is playing D right now because Cody Cece needs to go to the net. And it, it's... Cody Cece stealth power forward, baby. Yeah, and ah. it's... And th- that's not like a serious indictment of our style of play. It, it that's th- it comes with the territory, right? In some cases, it works out. We've we've seen good offense being created by guys like Dermot and Barry and Riley and even Cece jumping up into the play. But it, it mm-hmm. illustrates kind of one of the flaws of the system is sometimes you just have players playing positions they're not good at, right? Like there's a reason specialization is a thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I I found you that know funny. It, it almost feels. It, yeah, I, I mean, it's simplistic to say this, but it's like the system works better the more that you have people who are not narrow in terms of skill set. Like, the better you have guys who are good at different things, the better this is probably going to work. And that's probably true of almost every system, but Keith doesn't seem to sort of force guys into stylistic boxes to the extent that maybe another system might do. Like, everyone is a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. Yes, and actually... You know, everyone is a poor man's John Tavares. Yeah. <laughs> Micah McCurdy had a good tweet thread kind of about how the Leafs have changed under Keefe versus Babcock. And we've talked about this, t- you know, to great lengths, um, especially when it comes to the on-ice results, but he was looking more at coaching decisions. And one of the biggest changes mm-hmm. that we've seen is that players don't have specific roles under Keefe of, like, being offensive or defensive to the same degree that they did under Babcock. He has guys who he trusts, and he kind of rides them in every situation. Yeah, pretty much. With the exception of Barry, whose offensive role has been magnified, basically all the Leafs' important players are now being trusted and played as offensive and defensive workhorses. It's just been interesting. And, I, you know, I alluded to this earlier. I think we've alluded to this previously on the podcast. But Austin Matthews has started to look... Uh, unusually competent at defense and I'm wondering you know to some extent is that a knock-on effect of the high f3 thing he's back sooner you know he's getting beat less often he also looks more engaged to me and I probably am risking post hoc ergo propter hoc territory because I'm trying to explain how his defensive results have gone from bad to good 
the trust of his coach maybe goes a long way. You know, he's again we've talked about this enough previously, but he's using Matthews extensively now, and that may you know help encourage a certain amount of effort on Matthews's part. But any way you slice it, that's kind of been an encouraging development because his impact in a lot of the fancy stat metrics is now pushing into the territory we've always hoped he would be. Like, we're now talking one of the very best players in the world, and he was always that in terms of goal scoring. But as his defense gets more and more competent, we're talking about a really well-rounded player. Yeah, and there, there has been... I don't know that I'd call him well-rounded yet, but it's been encouraging. There has been some pullback on the offensive side. In terms of his ability to mm-hmm. generate high-danger shots with his team on the ice, it hasn't been as good as last year. So maybe there's some compensation going on where, you know, he's being less dangerous offensively, making up for it, or less dangerous offensively, making up for it defensively. Mm. The thing is, he's such a good shooter that it hasn't impacted his individual stats much at all. So not, And part of that is also, like, on a per-game basis, he's just playing more, which helps. His rate stats yeah. offensively, you know, in his first three years, his rate stats offensively in terms of points six per 60, goals per 60, he was the best in the league. You know, best or second best. He's now in merely superstar territory. Yeah. But maybe and, that's uh, a necessary thing. If it makes him better defensively, you know, maybe it comes out in the water. He comes out ahead on the whole, right? As we've said before, we don't exist to pump up Austin Matthews' individual stats. Yeah, which are, you know, doing fine anyway, frankly. Yeah, he, he doesn't need the help. <laughs> this is actually, and this is a bit of an aside, but we were having a conversation internally uh, with the return of Sidney Crosby, about is Connor McDavid the best player in the world? And, you know, I think probably, but it is worth noting. I think the offensive gap between McDavid and anyone else, even including Crosby, is probably now too big to deny. But McDavid's defensive impacts are still awful. And Crosby's have gotten better and better and better until last year he was a really plausible Selkie candidate. And I find that really interesting how he's developed because he wasn't known for this, you know, uh, eight or ten years ago. He's really just developed himself into a super well-rounded player. It is interesting to see a supposedly offensive forward, and granted, you know, Crosby is one of the greatest players at improving himself in the history of the game. But, you know, it does give you some hope when you think, okay, Austin Matthews is, after all, still quite young. There is potential for growth in his game, and it's, as much as it may feel like too much to hope for almost on top of his goal scoring, which is so good already, you know, maybe we do get to see a player who is at some point a good two-way forward in addition to being a great offensive forward. Maybe that hope is back on the table a little bit now. I'm definitely trying to sprinkle in some optimism here so that the whole podcast isn't, wow, goaltending is bad. Yeah. (laughs) To be honest, I actually think Crosby right now is still the best player in the world. I think there's a case, and maybe I'm just too swayed by points. You know, like, I I just, I see that towering number that McDavid is putting up, and I think, okay, you know, that's that's too much to overcome, but, like, Crosby is really, really good. (laughs) Yeah. People are about to be reminded once again of how good he is, because he's coming back to a team that was already playing quite well. Yeah, no, he's, he's no longer at his offensive peak, um obviously yeah but he is 
you know, one of the, still probably one of the five best offensive players in the world. And oh, by the way, now he's a Selkie player. Like, just, he's that level. Yeah. He, he is now Patrice Bergeron's defense with Sidney Crosby's offense. That's dumb. It's just silly that that can even happen. <laughs> right? He's unconsciously good. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not disagreeing. Like, there's a statistical case for that. And if you think we're kind of whistling Dixie here, have a poke around and take a look seriously because he's legit gotten really, really good um, in that respect. It's just kind of unreal. I-, I will say, and this is definitely a forecast of me approaching my grumpy old man years, but I'm totally going to say as like an older like you people don't even know how good Sidney Crosby was he was really good <laughs> yeah no he's unbelievable he he's he's probably the best player I've watched in my lifetime right like I I yeah I would say so I only caught the you tail know. end the very tail end of Gretzky's career and and Lemieux's career so they, they were a shadow of what they were but like start to finish Crosby's the best player I've seen in my life yeah he, he just uh an absurd level of dominance and it's really impressive just his capacity to improve i don't know that i can name a player who has added so much to his skill set year after year after year and who has really made himself into such a versatile forward in addition to being a great it, it feels like player, every so. it, feel, it feels like every year crosby just spends the summer and says okay yeah i'm gonna become elite at this thing now where one year he's like okay you know what time to become an elite face-off guy and he just did it. And it's like, next year, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have a Rocket Richard yet. I should just do that. Yeah. Like, it's just, I mean, the, the guy, like, you have to be kind of monomaniacal to have his level of success impaired only by some very unfortunate injuries. But then to keep saying, but I want to be better, but I want to be better, but I want to be better. I do think that if he had been healthy through his whole prime, we would legit be having a conversation now of Crosby or Gretzky. Like, he would be seriously discussed as the greatest player of all time. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not taking away from Gretzky's accomplishments, which are unbelievable also, but just the level of dominance that he's had over Crosby is something that I feel like gets under-discussed. Um, sorry, that Crosby has had over his era. So, yeah, yeah I just wanted to plant my flag for Crosby. <laughs> yes. All right, uh, we should talk about something else. We, one thing we did want to discuss, uh, I guess, and this will tie into some optimism stuff, is Timothy Lohjegren and Rasmus Sandin. Mm-hmm. So Sandin has now played three games with the Leafs in this stint. He played, obviously, six before. Um, we'll talk about him first because we ha- we'll have more to discuss. San- uh, Lohjegren's played one game that was mostly a blowout, and he played 10 minutes in that game. <laughs> so there isn't as much to, to talk yeah. about there. What do, you, what do you think of Sandin in this kind of recent cameo? I love him. I never want him to go away again. He is precious to me, and he's everything I dreamed of. No, you know what? He's. It's not perfect. You know, you can still see him figuring out maybe what the right level of ambition is to play with, but he's already making a couple of plays a game where I'm like, wow, that was smart. That was a good time to take advantage of an opportunity. That was an intelligently chosen rush. Katz uh, has talked in the past about how Sandian is like the guy to play in Sheldon Keefe's system. Like, he's meant to kind of play in the system where it requires a versatile skill set and ability to judge situations rapidly and to adapt and take advantage. I think he's going to be really, really good. And at the moment, I'm not putting any ceilings on my expectations for him, which is 
rare for me personally. Normally, I try to be really conservative with prospects, but I think that he's going to be at least a pretty good second pair defenseman and maybe more. Yeah, I I agree with that. I, I've, I've liked what I've seen from him. Obviously not the finished product. Um, I do still get nervous when I see him in his own zone defend. I, part of that is just, you know, he, he's still he's still young. He's still 19. It, he, he's not a physically imposing guy by any means. So it almost, when you go when you see him going to the corners with some guys, you almost feel like, oh man, that's a bit unfair. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's acquitted himself quite well, I think. Um, and I'm very excited for him. Liljegren has only played the one game. I thought he was mostly fine in that game. Again, didn't play that much. It was a blowout, hard to get too much of a sense of really what's going on there. He had a a play that ended up into the back of the least net, as most of their plays did, um, where he he tried to... (laughs) It was that kind of night. Yeah, he tried to gain the zone, the Chicago zone, lost the puck, and then it, it was kind of a sloppy change in that he wanted to go off, uh, but no one came on for him, and then that left a hole where the Blackhawks player was essentially able to get a, a breakaway. I think it was Kubelik. Mm-hmm. That is not entirely on the Ugrin. I feel like, you know, other players should read and react and be able to be like, hey, our right defenseman is has moved up the ice. Maybe I should cover for him. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's apparently not in our... Not in, not in our software at this point, I suppose. But that's not something we do here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think he was a, a big problem. He didn't stand out as someone who was going to be like targeted and brutally, you know, uh, brutally exposed. Um, I I like his stretch passing a lot. That's something I've always liked about him. It, it's Gardner like. The Leafs actually mm-hmm. don't have a lot of great passers from the back end. I think Riley is certainly more of a legs guy than a hands guy. Barry kind of the same. It's not like an elite long-range passer the way Jay Gardner was. I think Louis Grant can kind of bring that element back to us, which is nice. Uh, it's always nice to have that as a skill set. It's fun to watch when it works. So we'll see. I, I am high on him. Everyone who I you know, talk to who follows the Marlies, which includes our Marlies guys like uh, Species and Hardev um, and Kevin Papetti as well, they, they think he, you know, he's deserved this. He deserves to be an NHL player. So I, I, I'm looking forward to what he can do. Yeah, he has, you know, we should note that for the bye week, he's been sent back down to the Marlies. We don't know what the long-term plan is. If the Leafs have uh, a return to somewhat like full health on defense, there probably isn't room for him right now, unless they're willing to make some pretty aggressive changes. And I think, you know, Sandin has shown that he should stay first and foremost. So, you know, we're keeping an eye on, on Liljegren's development. I think, realistically, we're going to see a lot more of him next year. But I think that you can certainly be reasonably optimistic about him. Yeah, I mean... To be honest with you, like, I feel like the Leafs have had three prospects who are kind of worth a damn in Sandin, Liljegren, and Nick Robertson. And it's not to say that anyone after them is totally hopeless, but they're all kind of, well, maybe, you know, of the kind that... They're the type of prospects every team has. has. Exactly, and that's fine. And, you know, if you don't believe me, it's actually worth... Uh, Scott Wheeler, a friend of the site and former editor, has a prospect pools ranking going on right now where he looks at 15 to 20 prospects in each team's organization. And 
it's been, you know, interesting to see how much there is, you know, like what a quantity there is of all of these kind of, well, maybe guys. And you say, like, if he fixes that, if he builds that in this game, he'll be good. And, you know, a couple of those guys will, and most of them won't. And most of them won't be regular NHL players. It's those three guys in Sandin, Liljegren, and Robertson where I'm like, they're above that. Like, I genuinely think it's beyond just, well, maybe. It's at the point of, well, probably, and possibly something quite good. So, such optimism as I have in our prospect pool, which is not very deep, is centered basically on those three guys. Yeah. I, I want to see Liljegren more the rest of the year. So, obviously, our first foray... I'd like to. Our first foray into 11 forwards and 7 defensemen didn't go great, but... <laughs> yeah, but that wasn't... It wasn't amazing, terrific. no, to say the least. Uh, Keith hasn't really played his fourth line. He pretends his fourth line doesn't exist, right? And yeah. I, some people mentioned this to me on Twitter when I asked, you know, what are the benefits of 11 forwards, 7 defensemen? Because I, I genuinely don't know a lot about, you know, what the theoretical benefits of each system is, but... I guess the idea is if you're going to ride your stars, you, this gives you more, more of a chance to ride them, and you get another defenseman uh, in the picture, which could be situationally useful, and also gives you the chance to put Liljegren in the NHL. And realistically, we need to figure out what Liljegren is this year. I think the biggest, not the biggest, but one of the things I'm really frustrated with the Leafs about is that they haven't used the ability to gain information about their players when they've had the mm. opportunity to. And that's most obvious with Travis Dermott. It was pretty obvious. I guess in hindsight now, it's very obvious with, with Justin Hall where we should have probably played him a little bit earlier um, because he at least seems mm-hmm. to be competent. And and now with, with Liljegren, like we need to be able to make a decision about whether Liljegren is ready to play a, re- a real role next year, right? And I don't want to make that decision based on training camp only. I want to make that decision based on some time in the NHL. I'm okay with that. I think that that's good. It's desirable. I'd be excited to see him. But I think that maybe there's still a bit more time in terms of Liljegren compared to, you know, some of those other players. Because he is still younger than maybe it seems like. So, like, I wouldn't be surprised if we see not that much of him. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'd like to, I'm not expecting but, to see much yeah. of him. But like, put, yeah. put another way, we are going to be cap-strapped next year, right? We are mm-hmm. going to have to play cheap people in the top four. And it's certainly on the bottom pair. Yeah. Right? And it will affect our team-building decisions if Liljegren shows up to be amazing. And it'll change our team. It'll change what we think we need to do if Liljegren absolutely struggles in the NHL this year. And it is awful, right? I think we need that information. Now, granted, we're in a playoff race. We can't afford to tank wins. We don't have that margin of error. Yeah, that's what I, I'm... Uh, it's kind of in the back of my head is... If Liljegren is your 7th defenseman now and then Muzzin comes back and you think he's your 8th defenseman, are you in a position where you still want to say, okay, I'm going to shuffle out one of the top 6 guys to see more of him or I'm going to run 7D? I do think, as you said, the 11 forward 7 defenseman is not a huge crisis for us because our 4th line barely matters. Like, And again, you know, it didn't go that well last night, but like Keefe has basically put his fourth line into a bag and throw them in the river so do whatever you want basically with them it doesn't make a whole lot of difference i just um i don't know i don't know if we're gonna have that level of flexibility defensively and it makes it so much more frustrating because last year we kind of coasted into a playoff spot and not a lot happened now we did have some injuries uh we had jake gardner out but 
we never really saw much more. And now with Travis Dermott, I have to admit, I'm wondering what is there? Is he capable of being a top four guy? I haven't been dazzled by him really at all this season. I still feel pretty much the same way about him, which is that I think he can anchor a pretty good third pair. And I don't know if there's more than that. So I do see what you're saying in terms of, we'd like to know more about Lil Yigren than we do. We do want to get a feel of, okay, how far can we rely on him? Because we might need this guy to be a fourth defenseman sooner rather than later. I just don't know uh, if we'll get the opening to do that, especially considering, again, Sandin, I think, is taking his claim to a spot that will be very hard to pry out of his hands. Yeah, no, I think that's that's pretty fair. All right, was there anything else that you wanted to discuss? No, I'm good. All right, sweet. Um, so thank you all for listening. You can find all of our stuff at pensionandpuppets.com. We'll have a lot of content to satiate you during the bye week and hopefully get the, the taste of that awful Chicago game out of your mouths. You can also follow Fulman and I on Twitter at RV and AT Fulman. And we'll see you next week.